Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. And you need a nice, strong sleep-wake rhythm to have a nice, strong, robust um, body clock or circadian rhythms. Um, as owls and larks, we have different times of day at which we're hungry. You watch the timing and you watch the duration. And that is probably what is your, is your natural sleep sweet spot. So we're really pleased to have the return of uh, Dr. Dal Ray, who is the Director of Sleep Science and a Senior Researcher at the University of Cape Town. We had Dale on our podcast in March this year talking about the science of sleep, and we got such a great reaction from it. And particularly our Patreon uh, supporters have been asking a lot of questions, so we decided to have Dale back to answer some of those very pertinent questions. And uh, Ross, it's always, it's always a subject that I think for many people is it's such a huge, wide-ranging list of topics that you could discuss here. When we did the first podcast, we said, well, we could probably do three or four editions of a sleep podcast. Um, but again, the patrons asked some very personal questions. Always. I mean, ask Dale, whose voice people will recognize. If you, if you tell people what you do, I guarantee you they'll ask you five questions. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's got a sleep story and everyone's yeah. interested in sleep. It's so personal. Yeah, so, so when you're so at the dinner table at a dinner party, is it, if somebody says, so what do you do for a living? It kind of stays with you for a while longer than the accountant next to you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, the guy on the right doesn't get asked. Let's <laughs> ask the sleep person 50 questions. <laughs> so that's what happened. I said to patrons, this is your show and let us know what you'd like to ask because our first episode was back in March. We had Dale here. Mm-hmm. And amazingly enough, we got, we always go through the questions in a moment, but none of them were duplicates, which was awesome. So we can cover everyone's question. And they were good ones. I yep. mean, when we first spoke to Dale back in March, we covered the basics. We met owls and larks and how exercise, you had morning and evening types and time of day and sleep hygiene. And a lot of this. And you've will, become will a lark in the process, haven't you, really? From well, an owl? No, Dale says I never, you never change your yeah. DNA. <laughs> well, you've managed to have a couple of early morning rides as opposed to those always afternoon rides. That's because my mates are inflexible yes. and they and they don't um, they don't accommodate my desire to leave for a bike ride at 7pm. <laughs> Something about having kids and, and, so yes, yes. and so I have to wake up at 6 to go with them. It's either that or face the wind alone. So, so yeah, so thanks very much to the patrons for your questions and obviously to those, even those who didn't submit questions for your support. Um, we tried in the last two months to really leverage and speak more to the patrons for those who don't know, basically, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, of the podcast, and you value what we do, you can pledge a small donation. There are three tiers. And then what you get for that, as from a month or two ago, is this kind of opportunity, bonus episodes, which we'll prepare for you and, and release exclusive to patrons. And then also, I've started to do what, for now, I'm calling fireside chats, where you get an expert, medical, doctor, sports scientist, coach, athlete, and then an exclusive Zoom link to patrons only and allow you to actually listen in and ask questions of those people yourself. So there's good value there. I mean, I hate I hate punting what we do for money because we do it anyway. But yeah. if you do enjoy this podcast, patron is where you show your support. 
We're just showing how much we appreciate our patrons more than yeah, anything. Exactly. Right. You wanted to kick us off then, Ross? Let's with do all it. these questions. Yeah, so we'll do it in the order they arrived. So it's not by theme or anything. And, and if, if episode one was Sleep 101, this is Sleep 200. <laughs> and so feel free to take it as advanced as you wish. Yeah. <laughs> so the first question is from Martin Roman. Roman. It's actually three questions, but it's Martin's one-year anniversary with us on Patreon. So that's okay. He says, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo takes five 90-minute naps a day. I remember this. This is me now. I remember this story from a couple of months ago, and I thought, "There's no way <laughs> that he does that." But he doesn't have a normal but, job. Yeah, I had, I had feelings the same as when I read about Tom Brady's infrared pajamas and his sleep. You know, it's one of those stories. But the story, because I remember it, it went on to say that Ronaldo basically doesn't sleep in an eight to ten hour block. He sleeps instead from eight thirty till ten. Or think it was from 10, 10.30 till midnight, sorry. Then he wakes up again and does things until 3 a.m., then sleeps till 5.30. And, and This is known, I think, as polyphasic sleeping, yes? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it is. So Martin's question, basically, is could you please, Ronaldo aside, <laughs> could you please elaborate more on this topic with regards to polyphasic sleeping and how it could encompass a normal 8 to 10 hour guy like me to his daily routine? Of course, if it's even possible. Let's, let's go there. Okay. So of course it's possible. I mean, we can do anything that we want to. So if you want to be a polyphasic sleeper, be my guest, go for it. But you need to understand that we're designed to be monophasic sleepers. Okay. Your cat is a polyphasic sleeper. Okay. <laughs> you are not. We are designed to have one consolidated nocturnal sleep. And that sleep needs to be somewhere between sunrise, uh, sunset and sunrise. So history is littered with people who um, who do polyphasic sleeping. So Ronaldo's um, not alone. And um, we, didn't we say Edison was one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. remember that from episode one. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so it's an interesting approach to sleep because you know people might think, well, I can sleep, then I can get things done, then I can sleep again, and I can sort of adjust my day in a specific way. That's great. But from the biological perspective, the reason we don't think we're designed to do that is it's completely disruptive for your body's circadian rhythms, your 24-hour mm. body clock. So we're designed to literally live by the sun, as we had this in the first um, in the first episode. We need to be awake and active um, when the sun is up, and we need to asleep when the sun is down and the problem with polyphasic sleeping is that it creates so your sleep habits and your sleep pattern feeds back to your body clock and reinforces it and you need a nice strong sleep wake rhythm to have a nice strong robust um, body clock or circadian rhythms and when you do polyphasic sleeping you send very confused messages um, back and we know that when you you're literally constantly disrupting your body clock and constant disruption of your body clock only leads to problems down the line from a metabolic perspective primarily um, but a number of other systems start to take strain as well so it's it's not really an, an advocated way of sleeping mm. there's some people that'll say oh but you know when we were in our hunter-gatherer phase all that time I was, ago i was literally just going to play devil's advocate yes. and do that so yeah. thank you yeah then they will say but you know we we did do more polyphasic sleeping because um you would sleep um as the temperature went down and as you were um, environmentally ready ready to go. But someone would then stay awake to either watch over people or stoke the fire or whatever, and you might then take it in turns. And it's true that that, that was a behavior to some extent, but it wasn't necessarily, it was more, uh, um, I want to say, uh, it was put in place out of need as opposed to what would be biologically um, correct. Right. 
And as it became unnecessary, had it been optimal, it wouldn't have been the behavior that was filtered out. Completely. Is we that, would we would right. still do it. You said earlier we're designed to be monophasic sleep sleep um, sleepers. Yeah. <laughs> what are and I hope this question comes out right. What are the what are the features of that design that we know that to be true? Does that make sense? What I'm asking. Yeah, you? I get. Yeah. So to me, it comes down to the fact that we um, are we are diurnal, and which means that we um, sort of are active in the, in the daytime. And that we have this uh, this very robust circadian rhythm, and that um, it, it we have peaks and troughs for different aspects of our mm. of our biology. Time to be awake, time to be asleep. So I mean, it's everything from the time of day at which we um, release hunger hormones, and the time of day at which we are more accurate with a tennis serve, and all of these things show this this very stark rhythmicity, which mm. seems to have sort of two points at which were peaks and troughs. I mean, I remember you explaining to us in, in, in part one, there's, there's this clock that's almost set and then we get a release of growth hormone, which is early in the morning, just before waking up, if I remember correctly, probably not. But but you, you there's, a, there's a famous curve I remember doing the basics that shows when certain hormones peak yeah. and tr- a pituitary gland is active at certain times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are those, are those activities set from the moment of, of sleep? Because... If you need four hours to get into that phase of sleep into which those things happen, and you constantly wake yourself up on 90-minute intervals, do you measure and see a, a failure of these hormones to ever be released the way they should? Well, I think that's exactly why with a polyphasic sleep pattern or with um, a disrupted body clock, you end up in met- metabolic disarray down the line. Mm. So um, you're quite right. Take something like growth hormone, growth hormone as... Um, is produced in the first part of our sleep when we're oh. doing slow wave sleep. You think so you're, like, you ever think of cortisol? Yeah, that's the morning I'm awakening. Going with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was completely and wrong. No, not that far. <laughs> not that far. So, so it's quite true that we have hormones that um, are released while we sleep, and other hormones that are suppressed in sleep and that are um, released while we're awake, and they have different functions. And and um, if we don't get enough um, solid sleep, for example, we don't have enough time for. Um, growth hormone to to be released at night time and so you might be doing these little polyphasic sleeps but for all you know you're totally disrupting um these hormone profiles and um one of the biggest concerns is what that's doing to your um, immune system and because again Mm. you're an important part of your immune system is very active while we sleep and we we need a big bit of consolidated sleep for that time to um for that immune system to have its time to do its job so not not great Mm. i can't imagine how how you get away with it in a social environment. I mean, it's, it's got to be the least sociable pat- life pattern in the world. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is a relatively antisocial pattern, exactly. Yeah. But, um, I mean, <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, when you when you want to be the best and when we look at athletes of being the best, you, you do. You control your environment mm. such that it's all in your favor. And so I sure. don't think there's... Does it seem then unlikely that it actually does follow this this idea, Ronaldo. I mean, it seems unlikely, given his level of activity and what he does, that he would be able to sustain his lifestyle. Really surprising. Yeah. A, a really, a really surprising thing. It's not impossible, but it's 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 odd. I'd I'd bet that this is like when we spoke to Graham Close about nutrition, and what's happened is some someone has mentioned that he tried it once, yeah, and then it grows, you know, and it it grows exponentially with every retelling to the point that this is his lifestyle since he was a teenager. <laughs> mm. I doubt it's one of those stories you find on the bottom of a website. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The thing is, people like hacks, don't they? 
Yes, and actually, mm. this polyphasic sleeping, the first time I heard it was out of that sort of Silicon Valley world, because yeah. that's the sort of thing they just absolutely love yeah. to, to promote. Exactly. Let's try something really different. Mm. You know, let's sort of create a bit of a vibe around this, and it may or may not be a good idea. Um, oh, there, there must be, maybe there aren't for ethical reasons, robust studies where they forced people into polyphasic sleep for six to eight weeks and actually measured even short-term consequences or not? Not so much from a complete, so not in a laboratory setting for sure, more, mm. more just obs more observed in a free living space. Um, but I mean, the closest model is something like shift work because shift workers do have to have that sleep at odd times, catch up naps when you can. And we know the metabolic consequences of shift work over time are shocking. Shocking. I'll just because we're going to get to that. By the way, there is oh. a question on <laughs> night shift workers, but maybe quickly now. Shocking in the sense that. So when you constantly disrupt your circadian rhythms and your sleep patterns, you are um, interfering with a number of processes. You're desynchronizing a number of processes that need to be synchronized for you to be healthy, and these relate to your met metabolism and to your to your immunity, just to name two examples. And so we know that over time, shift workers have an increased risk of weight gain and being obese, increased risk of diabetes, hypertension, um, et cetera. And in some cases, there's um, some evidence for increased risk for um, some certain types of cancers as well. Mm. And it's probably mostly got to do with the interference with the immune system and when it's active, et cetera. Right. Hmm. Okay, we'll probably explore more practical tips about how to minimize those risks in a moment. The, the second part of Martin's question is, is a statement, um, which I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on. I read a book called Why We Sleep. Do you know this book? He um, says it's one of the best books ever written. I'd love to have it compulsory at the primary schools. So my question to you as an expert on sleep is, if you could pitch <laughs> lesson one, to primary schools, what would the most important thing they need to know about sleep be, other than that you need it? <laughs> Is this to the kids or to the, or to no, the you're, parents? you're designing the curriculum. For the kids. the first lesson, yeah. yeah. That's actually, that's a terrible, terribly nasty question. <laughs> for, uh, for two reasons. For Firstly, most kids have absolutely no issues with sleep, so they can't see, um, right. yeah. they can't see why it would be relevant. And it's a bit like saying to, to teens that are in experimental stage, like, hey, don't, don't smoke because one day you might get lung cancer. <laughs> like when yeah, you're a sure, kid, you're sure. untouchable. You can do yeah. anything. Mm. Um, and so the, the reasons that we don't want them to be, well, we would like them to be sleeping. It's much more around protecting their long-term health and they don't care about that because yeah, they don't. It's, it's but, out of sight. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, you could say, you know, you're more likely to be better at the sport that you play. Right. You know, you can concentrate better in class. Um, you're going to be able to control your mood and your emotions better. And, mm. you know, so, but it's difficult to think that okay. kids care about that. Oh, look, I, I mean, I'll take, I'll take that one as a nasty, I know it is, it's too broad <laughs> also. Um, but I guess the, what I'm interested in is, is you see all these people who've had trouble sleeping and mm -hmm. sometimes the solutions will be obvious to you, but not to them. Mm-mm. And so it does feel to me like the ba the most basic thing in the world has become excessively complicated. Mm -hmm. and can we teach sleep better? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's really what I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah, I think probably if I think back to to the scenario of the kids, it's like what you're doing with your sleep today. You're setting yourself up for a sleep pattern in the future. Mm. And so um, often when people have struggles with sleep later on in life, and we dig back and we go back and we look in the past, we see actually you know what. This started through um, certain behaviors already at junior school, if not at high school. And there might be self-imposed behaviors like 
uh, okay, I'm going to play video games until late at night. Mm. <laughs> or they could just be biological behaviors. You have a person with an extremely late body clock, can't go to sleep. Mom forces me to get into bed at eight because I'm, I'm, I'm in junior school and I must go to bed at eight. And I lie there and I hate the world and I hate my mom for putting me into bed and I hate the fact that I can't fall asleep. And now I'm developing a bad relationship with bed and sleep because I can't achieve it. Right. So um, there's a lot of sort of conditioning, I guess, that happens when you're young that sets you up on a pathway for better sleep later on. Huh. Yeah, very good. Thank you for those questions, Martin. The second one is from Jan Geiselaars. Um, and it's an interesting one. I know you, Mike, will be interested in this because we've spoken about this before. My question today is, what is known about the influence of food on sleep? For instance, how is sleep quality and or quantity affected by total intake over the course of the day, timing of meals, macronutrient content, fluid intake, and specifically that last meal before sleep? How important is timing and choice of foods with regards to sleep? Cool. So the the most important thing about food is timing, like hands down of when you eat. And I'll explain that now. A lot of people want to know, like, if I eat such and such substance, is that going to help me sleep better? Um, bananas are a great example. People think, oh, if I eat bananas, I have my cup of warm milk. It's got tryptophan. Isn't tryptophan really important for good sleep? Therefore, I'm going to sleep better. It doesn't actually work like that. So I'm um, looking at sort of specific uh, foods to try to promote sleep is probably quite difficult to get any result from of course the flip side of it is that you're going to eat or drink something that has got a whole lot of um, stimulants in it then clearly you're going to impact your sleep so from that perspective it's important and i suppose you could look at high sugar meals at being relatively stimulating anyway Mm. so it's probably more important to consider the time of day at which you eat um i saw that from that question one of the comments was that you know when um the that person started to eat a bit um, earlier that their sleep improved dramatically and for sure the rule of thumb is that you want at least a good sort of two hours if not a little bit more between the end of your last meal Mm. and your bedtime and again this we keep coming back to circadian rhythmicity but the time of day at which you eat acts as a cue to your body clock to be alert and active and it puts demands on your metabolism of course and so if you're going to go and eat um your a really large meal sort of eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, you're asking your body to be metabolically active at a time of day in which, in, at which it is trying to switch off and, and come down. And so there's that disconnect between that. Mm. So the other thing to bear in mind is that we, um, as owls and larks, we have different times of day at which we're hungry. So an, an, a night owl is typically not hungry in the morning and their hunger sort of kicks in more like mid-morning uh, later on. And so for them, cool, skip the first meals of the day. Don't eat if you're not hungry. That's like rule number one. And, you know, eat later in the day. That's absolutely fine. Just have the buffer between last meal and bedtime. Whereas a morning person is going to typically wake up ravenous. So great, have breakfast and get most of your calories in in the first half of the day. Having said that, the distribution of your calories is important. Mm. And there's quite a lot of studies which have shown that um, if you look at the same calorie intake that, um, the, between different individuals, if you eat the calories earlier in the day compared to later, you have less chance of, of weight gain over the course of the experiment. They haven't separated out between owls and larks, and so that's a, that's a problem with that particular study. Um, and we do know that sort of night owls tend to eat later, and once you get later in the day, your food choices tend to change. So you're less likely to go for the carrot stick at nine o'clock at night. You're much more going to go for no doubt. <laughs> yeah, yes. the more junk or snack type foods, which obviously yeah. is going to have an impact. Right. So um, there's 
that part to consider. So too. to be clear, if you f- if you front load calories in your day, mm-hmm. your weight loss or gain, depending on perspective, prognosis are better. Yeah, absolutely. That's you always say that. I mean, I, yeah. do. You, do you wake up hungry? Uh, I'm always hungry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, I think for people who have children, it's obviously, a, I mean, I know my wife and I have this constant debate because do we put the child down before we have dinner, which means our dinner is later, or do we do everything we need to do, have dinner with the child, and then we, you know, once we've, the child's gone to bed, we, we, we've finished our dinner. And ideally, we want to be eating earlier because we often mm. eat at eight o'clock at night, which is too late. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, those earlier meal times are important. It's a real challenge. Bulk of calories in the morning. It is a challenge, but it's discipline as well, I suppose. And then you're creating a pattern when you're showing your kids, this is when we eat and we eat together. Right. The other part of that question related to fluids, actually, and, the, and yes. that's, it's such an obvious thing. And I mean, so here's a story. If you're waking up more than twice per night to go to the toilet, that's not a normal response. And... You have to obviously make sure that there's no um, medical reason for <laughs> that. Diabetes. Just saying, bit of diabetes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. But I can't tell you how many people tell me, oh my gosh, but I wake up and then I wake up to go to the bathroom and then I can't fall asleep again. And when you look at their fluid intake throughout the day, they've got too much fluid at the end of the day. And it's such an obvious thing that you feel stupid talking to people about it. <laughs> but at the end of the day, reduce the amount of fluids that you're taking in in the in the evening and you drastically <laughs> improve your chances of getting through the night without going to the bathroom and the other thing is that i think that becomes a habit as well so again your body loves habit and so once you once you start to wake up it's like letting the dog out at night time you wake up <laughs> to mm. go to the bathroom and that disturbs your sleep and then even if you haven't had a lot of fluid your body goes oh but we always wake to go to the bathroom now and then that becomes ingrained mm. and that can be very disruptive to your sleep it's interesting because a few years ago I did a story um, on a training camp with one of our top South African athletes late Satile Lesinque and we were at the top of Sani Pass and he was telling me that he had this problem where he was going to the loo a lot at night and he was just getting disruptive sleep and I said to him well, what, is, what does he do before he goes to sleep and he would drink a half litre of Powerade yeah. before he went to sleep at night because for his belief was he was recovering from the days running and therefore if he drank the parade it would help him recover but ironically it was high in sugar and obviously it was a diuretic so it was he was spending half his night going to the loo so that's go. an extreme version of what you're talking about but it's I logical reckon, really i reckon there'd be a lot of people who do that now but with protein milkshakes yes oh, yeah i'm sure like there are a lot of people who say let me have a 500 ml glass of milk or jug of milk mm-hmm. with my whey protein muscle builder anabolic bomb stack and then go to bed thinking they're going to wake up looking like Arnold. <laughs> Eventually. Or looking like Arnold now. <laughs> That's what you end up doing. All that. All yeah. that. Yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, and, and, and your, your advice actually gels perfectly with Jan's experience because he went on to say that his sleep quality improved dramatically when he made a rule for himself that he would stop eating two hours minimum before bedtime yeah totally and that would be rule of thumb yeah so this is an example where conventional wisdom is actually correct yeah mm. <laughs> great next question thanks for that Jan next question's from Alan Clark who um, to just preface is I'm a long distance runner training for the London Marathon on Sunday week which was now Sunday past mm. in fact by the time you hear this it'll be two <laughs> so Alan I hope I hope you did well I hope everything went to plan but Alan's question basically is can you discuss any tips or techniques for improving sleep specifically around avoiding waking up early during the night and then not being able to get back to sleep. You alluded to something earlier, which will come up shortly. My sleep has been very poor over the last couple of months, despite fatigue from training. 
Poor sleep seems to be a vicious circle in that stressing out about not sleeping well tends to lead to poorer sleep. Are there tips or tricks to prevent the mind becoming overactive on waking that would then help getting back to sleep after waking too early? Mm. That must be quite common, I would imagine, in, in stressed out humans in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. So his um, key point there was vicious cycle. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens is when you get that early morning awakening, so that's somewhere between one and three, that is, it's a natural time to be awake. It's a natural time for us to wake. We mm. have a natural break in our sleep then, but most of us literally might go to the bathroom, otherwise turn over, acknowledge the fact that we've still got half asleep to go, yes, and fall back to sleep really easily. However, if you have any underlying stress or anxiety, that is the time that it rears its head because now you've done quite a lot of your deep sleep and you're actually physically relatively rested um and so if that if your mind is given a small window <laughs> to bolt mm. through it does and then that becomes a problem and once that starts to happen on a regular basis then you anticipate that it's going to happen and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so it definitely becomes a, a vicious cycle and the key is managing stress and expectations and this is going to sound again so so ridiculously simple if you're going to stress about sleep believe me you're going to break sleep and then sleep's going to break because you're stressed and then you're stuck in that vicious cycle so as easy as it sounds like to say hey so don't stress if you have some bad sleep it's quite fine everybody does um it's not that easy to to sort that out in your own head there's some things that you can do um, when that when you do wake in the middle of the night, and I'll quickly chat about that now, about what to, but you could definitely got to look back into the, what's happening in the daytime to put me in a position where I'm more vulnerable to this stress impeding my sleep at nighttime. And that's actually the key factor is to deal with what's happening in the daytime, whether it's work stress, family stress, social training, etc. cetera, mm. um, because you should be able to, wake up and go back to sleep again quite easily. Mm. So what happens when you don't, when you wake up at that one to three in the morning? So the first thing you gotta look at is you gotta look at how you're feeling. If you, and I'm, I'm talking about, you gotta separate head and body. So you look in your head a little bit, have I got a racing mind? Um, and then if so, that's something that we need to check in with, with um, for, for a minute now, which I'll look at. Alternatively, am I relatively peaceful in my mind, but have I noticed I feel a bit hotter? My body feels sort of up. I can sometimes hear the blood in my head. My heart rate seems to be a little bit faster. My breathing seems to be a little bit up. So those are two very separate things that happen. And both of them can trigger a little stress cascade, which means that it's more difficult to achieve sleep. Mm. So if I take the, the rumination and the busy mind, now your body's completely chilled. That's a good thing, okay? Because it means that your sympathetic nervous system hasn't taken hold and you're quite likely to be able to achieve sleep again. And here the key is to say, okay, so what's stressing me? Have a look at that. Can I do anything about it now? Yes, no. Make lists if you need to make lists. For some people, it's a matter of literally then and there, download what's in my busy brain, get it out, get it down, say, I see you, cool. I'll address you tomorrow. Um, otherwise, take note of what it is and see what you can do in the daytime to address the things that have arisen. It's quite a key to see what's, what's come mm. in that night. Um, and then you need to do some kind of mental imagery work to try to stop the looping so the whole point is that you've got this looping that's going on in your brain and you can't shut it off and if you just try and lie there and wait for sleep to come you're going to find that the looping 
just keeps going and then you get more stressed because you're like oh my god now look another hour's gone by now i'm gonna have a terrible day tomorrow and then you get more stressed and then you stress about your sleep and it's not coming and mm, off you go that's the vicious cycle and, and ellen talks about that that's so. a vicious cycle yeah. so there you yeah. need to do something where you literally distract your brain and there's a i mean there's loads of things out there that people can think about sort of imagery type things that get your mind to focus on something one of my favorite things that i like to do i have a particular mountain bike trail that i imagine and i literally i'm i started my front door and i picture every single detail of this ride Mm. and every literally from gear changes to okay hopping up here over this rock around this route i hate this route please don't let me slip on it whatever it is but you literally force yourself to be on your bike so literally in the first person going through every nook so, and cranny it's yeah, the art of distraction you're watching a gopro video of yourself yeah. on your ride and that you immerse your mind in that so it's Completely. a replacement technique it's a replacement technique it's, it's a do it's you, a trick <laughs> do you recommend and even what you spoke about a moment before where you make notes of what it is that's troubling you in your mm-hmm. mind mm-hmm. do you recommend that person does that lying down in their bed in the dark room mm-hmm. or should they change their environment to do that and then try again yeah, so there's a, there's a fine line here because for sometimes some people, so it depends on the time that you're awake for and you obviously don't want to be clock watching, but you're going to give yourself first opportunity to try to reachieve sleep. And only when that fails, then you get up, you remove yourself from the environment, you go to mm. another room, you, you know, you have a little think about life and then you, you come back mm. and you try again. How long should I try for? Again, without watching the clock, you need to give, like, probably it's in the order of at least 30 to 40 minutes that I would recommend that you try for. Because the problem with once you start to get up and go and do something, you then run the risk of creating a pattern where your body anticipates, oh, now we get up and we go and read. Yes, this is my read time. This is some quiet time. Um, And then you, you can be in trouble. So there's a time and a place to use get out of bed, but not always. So that mental imagery that I've described, it's out of distraction. It's trying to stop your mind from looping. And so you give it something and I can get, I've never, ever made it to the end of my route. Not once, mm-hmm. never, mm-hmm. ever. The other side of the coin was that the, f- physical the, feeling, the body. Yeah. The body. Yeah. So when that happens, you're almost certainly in sympathetic overdrive, if I want to put it like that. So you've gone more into that fight and flight mode as opposed to being in rest and digest. Which is, sorry to interrupt you, that's one of the manifestations of training too hard. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that might very well be what Alan's listening to this going, actually, you know what, I, I felt that uh, hot feeling. I felt yeah. like my body temperature was high, my pulse is racing. Yeah, okay. exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, so anyway, carry yeah. on, sorry, yeah. So the key there is to work to get that sympathetic drive down and to put yourself back into sort of your rest and digest mode. Nobody will sleep when you're in fight and flight mode like that. It's an absolute impossibility. And so what you're doing is you're trying to work on this nervous system to to calm it down, essentially, to open the gate so that sleep can come again. I mean, Mm. that's the short of it. Um, And a really simple way to do that is to use um, a deep breathing technique. So when I first heard about this, I thought it was absolute junk um i used to think it so we used to call it twinkly work my mom's a psychologist and when she goes down these roads we're like oh god mom you're being twinkly again but um i hate to say it there's actually something in some of these twinkly things that helps but um essentially the what the breathing is doing is it's changing the way that your um, nervous system responds and it is literally re-showing it this is what rest and digest feels like and it's able to you're able to bring that body temperature down bring that breathing rate down Mm. heart rate comes down blood pressure comes down 
and you've got to try and cool off at the same there, there time. There are even studies on that, like measuring vagal nerve discharge, if I remember correctly, showing that deep controlled breathing puts you into a vagal state, the vagus that's, being one of your passages. That's exactly where, yeah. the, where the magic happens. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. Exactly What's the it. vagal state? The vagal state is that parasympathetic state of being in complete relaxation mm. and rest. Mm. And for instance, if you increase, it's a nerve and it innovates in amongst other things, the heart, for instance. Yeah. And if you trigger the vagus, the heart rate goes down. Mm. So what you're doing with the breathing, and I remember them, I don't remember the study exactly, but they measured the discharge from that nerve. And sure enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> it increases with controlled, steady, deep breathing. Okay. It literally does have a bodily physiological effect. Exactly. That's why we had to go from twinkly to this actually works. <laughs> I mean, it's no longer twinkly. It's, it's dull and not shiny at all, yeah. <laughs> but effective. I remember many years ago, and I don't actually remember where I learned this, but I used to, if I battled to go back to sleep at night, I do this technique where you literally start at your toes and move up your body. And every time you breathe out, you relax your toes, then your then your mm-hmm. feet, and then your mm-hmm. ankles. I don't think I've got above my knees at any point, but it it. it it helps you focus on a part of your body and the breathing of your body, which naturally slows your mind and your body down at the same mm. time. Totally. That seems to work reasonably well for yeah. me. Yeah. So you're actually bringing together the two things. You're bringing together mm. the mental imagery and the breathing and putting them together. So yeah. you're addressing the head and the body at the same time. Yeah. I've got a very relaxed body from the knees down because of that. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, it's, I know this is breathing, not sleep, but I've noticed a lot of sports teams are now using breathing just before games and at half time. And the first team I remember seeing do that was the South African Sevens. And because in a Sevens match, there's literally a two minute change around at half time. And so the coach has got 120 seconds. So that's time is precious. But the South African coach started that with 15 seconds of deep breathing. Hmm. And the players would all stand deep breath in, uh, and then someone would count, and then he'd speak to them. And the rationale was that until you breathed yourself into a state of relaxation. Anything I say as a coach is going to be lost to the, the fight or flight adrenaline phase you're in. So mm-hmm. anyway, the point is that breathing makes a difference to your nervous system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's massive for you, Alan. I hope that that has helped. Now that you've finished the London Marathon, maybe you're on a bit of a downtime in training because that could well be part of Alan's yeah, issue. Yeah, loads of athletes in a high t- a period of um, or high intensity training will experience poor sleep. It's very common. Mm. Yeah, so thanks very much. Alan's been a patron since May 2020, so that's since COVID time. So thank you for <laughs> your loyal support. Next question, Josh Miller. Mike alluded to something like this earlier. I'm very interested as the father of a young child mm-hmm. on the effects of late afternoon or evening training on sleep both the effects of strength training and the intensity of training on your subsequent sleep. So I guess late afternoon, evening is because you've got to squeeze it in around fatherhood duties. <laughs> and how does that compromise sleep? Yeah. So um, there's no problem training late afternoon, evening. There's I mean, a lot of people benefit from it. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's an optimal time very much from a strength training perspective as well. So I mm. wouldn't be stressed about that too much. And the, it's the same as we mentioned earlier, provided you leave enough time to come down. So we all know that after a training session, after an afternoon or evening match, you're pretty amped and mm. um, you have to be able to come down. You can't expect sleep in anything less than two to three hours after training. So bearing in mind that post-training, you're going to need to eat and then you're going to need some downtime <laughs> and then you're only going to be sleeping. So just bear in mind that you've got to fit in that post-training meal as close to the um, training session in the evening as you can to still allow your body enough time to 
to switch down into sleep mode. That's cool. Mm. Just elaborate maybe on this strength training in the afternoon as potentially the better time of day to do it. Yeah. So loads of the um, research studies that were done um, originally around circadian rhythms and um, and performance showed that um, strength-related performance tends to um, be better when a person is training somewhere in that 5 to 7 p.m. window. And I say 5 to 7 because that's probably when most of the studies were conducted as to that being the actual magic time. Mm. Um, and so if you are in a position to be able to work harder in a training session at a given time of day, then clearly you may well have um, better adaptation. Right. Yeah. Um, Just remind listeners, and especially many would not have heard you the first time, there is really, in my opinion, fascinating work on optimal time of day to train and how it interacts with your genotype, which is to say DNA. Yeah. (laughs) Who you are at a fundamental level. Just remind us very quickly of that relationship again. Cool. So um, if you were to look at the population as a whole, you would see that it looks like from, uh, from that under most circumstances, especially strength or short-term um, exercise, you would be better off doing that exercise in the latter part of the day. Um, but there's a really big caveat to this is that when it comes to more endurance type exercises, that doesn't seem to be quite so clear. And in fact, what seems to be important is more important is training at, a, at the time of day, which suits your, um, your phenotype, which is an expression of your genotype. So that's what Ross was mentioning, as well as be, taking into consideration the time of day at which you need to compete. So quite simply, if you are genetically an, an evening type, an, an owl, no matter what, you're going to be better off training at the end of the day. Asking an owl to train in the morning is just a horrible idea. Um, <laughs> Ross is shaking his head. Not shaking. Not sh- exactly the opposite to shaking. So the study nodding. Is, this yeah. is nodding. So there's quite a neat study which looked at um, training time of day, and it found that the owls, even when they did have training in the morning, they still perform better in the evening. So you might as well just go go with with your biology. Um, when it comes to morning types, they they're different. They seem to firstly be more up for training in the morning. I think you can appreciate that. And they actually seem to get the benefit of morning training such that they can switch this balance so their performance actually improves in the morning compared to evening. So Mm. they're actually going against the sort of natural thing Mm. that, you know, everybody performs better at the end of the day. And so when you've got an owl training in the morning for an evening, sorry, a morning type training in the morning for a morning event like a South African marathon or um, bike race, that person is at a distinct advantage because they're training at their sweet spot time of day. And that coincides with competition mm. time of day too. Mm. Mm. Just, to, I mean, it's a slight digression here, but is there a way to, you talk about the individual way that people sleep. Can you find out what your individual optimum sleep time is, for instance? I mean, there are times when I wake up after six hours sleep and I feel brilliant. There are times when I sleep for eight and a half, nine hours and I feel terrible. And I've often wondered, maybe I'm a person who actually operates better on six hours versus eight and a half hours, for instance. I mean, is there a way of experimenting with that to find that optimum sleep time? Yeah, so you're talking about your sleep sweet spot. That, yeah. That, that's what we yeah. call it, yeah. yeah. So a couple of, yeah, definitely you're going to ask yourself a couple of questions um, to see if you're at your sleep sweet spot. But probably the most obvious thing to do is you have to watch what happens to your sleep when you're on holiday. Once you've had a good three days of sort of 
decompressing and adjusting from the frenetic work and everything that that you did you look at your sleep timing very often in those first few days of holiday we sleep long because we're paying back sleep debt and then often sleep shortens and you watch the timing and you watch the duration and that is probably what is your is your natural sleep sweet spot um so that's that's one thing the other thing that you mentioned which always makes me laugh is that people will go no i feel much better on six as soon as i go to seven or eight i feel revolting um, <laughs> and um, I mean, I hear this all the time and it's like proof that I don't need more sleep. It's possible. Maybe you don't. Maybe you actually are um, revolting on seven or eight hours of sleep. But often what happens is that when you're on the slightly shorter side of things, you're constantly in a slightly stressed state. And so as soon as you get that little bit of a longer sleep in, that's like a recovery. And then you do feel worse at first because you're now finally coming down and you're recovering and it's, it's not a nice place to be. And then over time, then that, that should become, start to feel more normal or better. Yeah, oh, interesting, yeah. Yeah, we're so adaptable, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. We, we make up for our own behaviors. <laughs> uh, next question is from Adriana Toledo Pisa, who's from Brazil. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good to have a listener down there. Thanks for the opportunity. I have a question about changes in sleep and age. We know that there are several physiological and anatomical changes in the body that age has met, that may impact sports performance. How does sleep change with age in terms of quantity and quality? And would this change also impact performance? Cool. So the general thinking is that once you go beyond 60, maybe 65, that potentially your sleep need reduces a little bit. So the recommendations for below that age bracket are seven to nine hours and it shortens to seven to eight hours for once you go over 60, 65. Mm. Um, I'm going to make a quick note on that, though, because the thinking is that potentially the sleep need changes because there's less growth and development. But if you're an aging athletic person who's Mm. still training, your sleep need is not going to go down because you need your sleep to, to to, to recover and to adapt. And so for aging athletes, you actually sleep's really important. Unfortunately, what happens to a lot of people as they age is sleep can erode. The quality often erodes. Sleep becomes a bit lighter. And a lot of that has got to do with changes in your circadian system, which means that you don't have this very robust sleep-wake rhythm anymore. And therefore, um, sleep timing can change. It can get a bit earlier than you would like. Um, you start to wake a little bit too early and you'd find it difficult to sustain good sleep quality. And I can guarantee you that the more exercise you do, the, the, um, the greater you're able to minimize that, mm. um, that, that change in circadian rhythmicity as you get older. I've seen that with my father. He, I mean, he was always an early morning guy because he was a runner and he used to wake up at six. Now he wakes up at four and there's no reason to do it. But he can't help it. But he can't help it. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like his clock is, he's, he's moved two time zones <laughs> to the east. It's, so, so the exercise makes that whole system more robust and will yeah. protect against um, that resetting. It can certainly help against that. Also, it, it, 
protects against the dampening of the circadian rhythm. So we want our rhythms to be very like big amplitude. Mm. So as soon as we have a lowering of amplitude, which seems to happen, and part of it can just be because as you age, you might do less physically in the daytime. And as soon as you're doing less physically in the daytime, there's less distinguishing right. between your daytime activity and your nighttime activity. And that dampens your activity pattern, which can feed back to dampen your clock, which can interfere with your sleep. I was surprised that it only kicks in at 60, 65. I, I thought that it would be like many other physiological systems. You know, the hormone levels, growth hormone, testosterone, they all start changing in, in our 30s. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it's as delayed as that. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem to be quite as early, and I, I, can't, um, I can't say why. The exception being with some women, obviously, when they go through menopause, which mm. is well before then, um, then they experience radical changes in their sleep. Um, but those are menopause-associated changes are not necessarily... St- age um age strictly speaking sure yeah just to be aware of that sure well yeah yeah, thanks adriana great question and uh another reason to exercise then scalatrax who is one of our olympic legends this is our highest tier thank you very much for that this is the question i alluded to earlier on shift work and, and his question is police officers frequently work long irregular and fatiguing shifts including night shifts what would be the best sleep strategy to try and recover from the situation so you spoke earlier about the risks of that now mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. to try and mitigate yeah absolutely yeah. i mean society is full of shift workers and we can't just go oh dear shift work sucks and unlucky for you that you you're in that category so thinking smart about how you mitigate the um, effects of shift work are really important and really it's around minimizing the um, potential damage that a erratic circadian rhythm or routine um, might have um so the first thing is to look at uh, scheduling of shifts. And so this is a bit of a bigger question, but for mm. sure staff um, or the people the people who are in charge of des- designing the shifts can definitely um, play an important role. So minimizing the, um, the, the number of shift changes in a short period of time are important. So if you're going to go into night shift, be on night shift for a good portion of time before you might get switched to an afternoon or a day shift. So I know that the hospital settings are starting to look at that. Okay, let's put you on night shift for four to five five nights. So extending it quite dramatically. Then we pull you onto, um, onto a morning shift, then you go onto an afternoon shift. So, so blocks, basically. We're saying like instead of doing two nights yeah. on one pattern, two nights on the next, do five. Yeah. At, at some point, intuitively, I would imagine it becomes too long because then the behavior starts to become ingrained yeah then you gotta you're gonna struggle to switch so probably yeah well i mean actually to be to be fair if you wanted to make this work best you would have people who only do night shift and they don't do anything else and like don't even bother trying to adjust today let's just let's just leave you there that's not properly it's not going to (laughs) work so yeah lengthening the shift time is important and then managing your light exposure your sleep period and your meal timing as you shifting from one pattern to another is really important. You need to think, I have just undergone jet lag. Um, I was just I'm, about to say, like if I asked you a jet lag question, your solutions would be overlapping. Totally, totally. Mm. So you're resynchronizing mm. to your new time zone. So um, as much as possible, when you are on a night shift, you want to minimize um, your light exposure in the daytime, really, because you want to be able to maximize the opportunity to sleep. Um, you, you, and you want to minimize the eating that you do in, in, in that part of the day. And a lot of people would make the mistake of waking halfway through. They'd come off night shift, sleep, wake to eat, and then go back to sleep again. And that's not how you would do it if it was reversed. So you want to rather come off your night shift, 
stay awake a little bit if you can eat have a consolidated sleep and then eat and go again the next day mm. so managing that is important melatonin can help a lot with people switching between night and um and day shift because it helps just to give your body the correct night day signal so melatonin mm. supplementation is important as well at, at the risk of asking a really um insane question if, if melatonin helps you get back to sleep, would a stimulant help you switch in the other direction? <laughs> okay, so no, um, we, we talk about different things here. Um, so people definitely, so when people are switching, they will, um, and you, or in a jet lag scenario, if you don't use melatonin and if your sleep is out of whack, then you definitely want to go, people want to use stimulants to stay awake and sedatives to bring sleep on. Um, yeah. that's like the default position and there is a time and a place for that but you need to be careful melatonin has a different different role because it's neither a stimulant nor a sedative mm. it's not acting as a sleepy medication it's trying to shift your body clock and so, so it would work in both directions it, melatonin yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay sorry but we wouldn't recommend stimulants and sedatives <laughs> to try and accelerate the, sh- the shift between shifts so sometimes they can be useful and i'm going to say that quite carefully but you need to just be careful about when and how much because remember lots of um, stimulants can erode your sleep quality which is not great so it can actually give you a lot more arousals and sedatives can remove REM sleep which is your rapid eye not remove entirely but reduce the amount of REM sleep that you get Mm. so you want to be careful that 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 that's not a so my first port of call would be to use melatonin light meal timing and exercise essentially to try to help you shift to your new time zone and in cases where often on that not the first night because you're too tired but often on the second night when you're switching from night back to day it's difficult to go to get back to a normal sleep routine then potentially um, a sleeping medication could be useful then but it's a once-off for a very specific Mm. reason and then back into normal you touched on it very, very briefly there what, what, what is the what does a sleeping tablet do what are your what's your view on them <laughs> what's what's the action how does it affect sleep and what is the is it, is it good bad ugly yeah so sleeping tablets essentially work to flick the sleep switch in your brain to the on position if i can put it like that so they work by um changing the neural signaling that's happening in the brain which signals sleep as opposed to to being awake so for a person that is unable to naturally go into a a sleep space it can be useful Um, so for example someone who's had a trauma in fact a lot of people in, in COVID are experiencing this hospitalizations big surgery major life event um then it's very difficult to sleep because of the anxiety around that. So sometimes sleep medication then is useful. But for a short period of time and for with a very clear plan to wean, um, it's not a long-term solution. Um, so why is it not a long-term solution? Because firstly, there's um, the dependency issue. And whether, it's, whether or not it's physical doesn't matter. So some of the older sleep medications, benzodiazepines, for example, are um, highly physically addictive. And so you're going to go down a rabbit hole trying to come off that later on. Um, sleeping medication but can also be um, mentally addictive. And that's even though, so the newer drugs, the Z drugs, for example, Zolpidem, they may not be as physically addictive. But as soon as you start to believe that you're not going to sleep without the medication, believe me, you won't. And then the default is to use medication. And that does not 
it's not great because it we don't think it's good for your sleep structure uh, we don't think you get as much slow wave sleep as you should get with normal sleep and we don't think you get as much REM sleep and that's the real worry mm. so it's not a long-term solution I, I certainly I, whenever I travel east or west I take a tablet on the plane because there's no way I sleep on the plane yeah and I, I'm well aware on the other side that in one or two days I need to try and wean myself off these things because I'm acutely aware getting into bed on day four or five Tonight's the first night I haven't taken a sleeping tablet and I'm not going to sleep. Yeah. And I've talked myself out of sleeping. Completely. So it is, it is, a, it is really important to be mindful of that. So. Yeah. 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 Great. Thanks very much. I hope that helps. Maybe Scalatrax is a police officer and hopefully that's given you some advice and then your employer will let you take it. <laughs> <laughs> then Kate Stalker. I know Kate. Kate's a physio working in the UK, one of our enthusiastic followers. Thanks, Kate. Kate actually had two questions. She asked me one separately, which is related to owls and larks, morning and evening, evening and morning types. Which of those tends to cope better with travel and jet lag? Hmm. So the thinking in the beginning was that owls do better with um, with jet lag, um, but it probably depends more on the direction that you're traveling mm. in. And you have to, there, there are a number of other factors on top of that, superimposed on top of that, and not least of which is your sensitivity to sleep loss. So you can be an owl or a lark and you can have low sensitivity to sleep loss, which means that you can deal with one or two days of, of, um, of sleep deprivation, which is one of the outcomes of jet lag. And then you'll be absolutely fine. So it'll, it'll, it won't, you'll adjust and you'll, you'll be okay. The thinking around the owl lark side though, is that if you're traveling east, for example, um, once you get to um, the, your your new time zone, you're supposed to um, shorten shorten your body clock, and that can be um, sometimes we find for some reason the morning types seem to be less flexible when it comes to mm. shifting their mm-hmm. clock. And so even though you would think, oh, but an owl, it's easier for them to a, a lark should be easier for them to shorten because they have a slightly shorter shorter rhythm. It's more around the flexibility of their um, circadian rhythms to to make the adaptation. So nice. as a rule, typically, typically owls do better, um, but it's probably more that they also cope better with sleep um, deprivation to some extent. And huge individual variation. I remember monster, monster. The first thing I ever did for World Rugby was look at a, a I don't know what you'd even call it. I, I presented something on travel fatigue and jet lag. And I remember coming across studies where often they were done in business people in right Dale because they were going east or west for business and so on. And they wanted to know how many days they needed to be sharp enough to make money. <laughs> and uh, they would do cognitive tests, physical tests, memory tests. And the people who do best physically often do the worst mentally. They often report the best sleep, but they actually do the worst in the memory tests. And so there's really no, I, I couldn't discern a single pattern in all that research. Mm-mm. It's highly individual. Yeah. And even as like, um, if I think about you saying, you know, if you've recently been to the States and you've come back sort of with your socks knocked off, I bet you that when you were much younger, it had a, a smaller effect. And sometimes we see that we, as we age, the effect also becomes greater. Mm-hmm. Okay, then Kate's real question. <laughs> that, was a, that was an addendum, which we did first. I recently heard Eric Cressy speak, and he mentioned the teenagers who get less than six hours sleep a night are 1.7 times more likely to get injured than those who get eight hours or more. I guess, first of all, is, have you seen that and is it true? And then the question is, what is the likely mechanism? And are there similar statistics in the adult population? And then as a physio, relates to larks and owls, is someone who is an outlier owl, evening type, more likely to be injured training in the morning? 
<laughs> cool. Those are nice questions. So um, the studies and um, probably the study that she's referring to was conducted in, in teens, followed them over a period of 21 months, looked at baseline sleep and then looked to see who got injured over the course of the study. And they did find that the shorter sleepers were more likely to sustain an injury over time. Um, so I'm not aware of a similar study that's been conducted in adults at this stage, but I would Im- I can't imagine why it wouldn't there wouldn't be a similar mm. some trend. And so the thinking around why somebody would be more susceptible to injury on sleep deprivation, it's almost certainly got sort of a neurological underpinning to it. So if you think that with sleep deprivation, one of the prime and and we with this this is a model of chronic sleep deprivation it doesn't have to be wild sleep deprivation but it's but it's chronic and sustained um one of the biggest or well, the biggest systems that are impacted from that is, is your cognition first and foremost and then your neural networks and and sort of so that would affect things like your motor, your neuromotor skills and that and so if you've got a challenge a sort of an underlying um sleep deprivation issue you may be more likely to make mistakes foot placement, um, sort of hmm. in turning sports and that kind of thing. So it probably comes down to more of the neuromotor skills that are um, making make it more likely that you make mistakes that place you at risk for, for muscle tear type injuries, et cetera, or judgment-related injuries, I should say. But they didn't, they didn't distinguish that in the surveillance study, I'm guessing. No. They just said injured, yes or no, and yeah. not type and mechanism. Yeah, no, they didn't. It's interesting because I thought, I, if I'd guessed, I would have thought it was to do with cortisol, growth hormone and tissue repair and robustness as a consequence of sleep deprivation. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's, so that would be the issue at, at that level. Because there's enough sleep there even, unless yeah. you literally Especially keep Especially when you've awake. got teens. I mean, the, what are the, mm. like, how are you going to get like that much sleep deprivation mm. stacked up in, because in, in, yeah, you, you haven't been alive long enough. <laughs> Maybe that's the mechanism <laughs> later for... <laughs> For, for older adults. I mean, once once injured, sleep becomes important. Yeah, it's an important component of the repair yeah, process, the repair absolutely. Process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the second part, is there any evidence that suggests injury predisposition changes in owls and larks training at the quote-unquote wrong time of day? So again, see, these are studies that need to be done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, need, we need to get these things done. So I haven't seen um, a study along those lines um, and again, I would put it down to a very similar mechanism. And I mean, you can literally picture picture the, the scene, picture that night owl who's up at five in the morning to go for a training session, who is clearly not awake. Body temperature is only rising in three hours time. So coordination, for example, is just going to be way worse. So you may well be more likely to to do yourself an injury. <laughs> if you can't picture that, just come and ride with us on a Sunday morning and I'll show it to you in the first 20 Ks of there, the ride. There are, I mean, there are those outliers and you see some of the guys on Strava that there's a guy that I follow who's up pretty much riding every single day at half past four in the morning and they are obviously training their bodies to do that. Yeah. But they used to that. I mean, they, they, they won't be asleep in their bodies for the no first two hours. They'll be used to that early morning rising. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget that there are plenty of people who are predisposed to being fabulous at training in the morning and who <laughs> find waking actually really easy. Whereas if you say to that person, you know what, we're going on a night ride, come and join me at eight o'clock tonight, that person's going to be like, oh, 
Yeah, I can, but I'm so needing to not be. I yeah. prefer not to. <laughs> but and at the risk of repeating from episode one, I, one of the most fascinating things I ever heard you present was that if you look at a sample of endurance athletes, you will find more mm. larks, morning mm-hmm. types. Mm-hmm. And if you look at people who do team sports, you find owls. Mm. And it's because their predisposition selects them, or vice versa, they select themselves to not do the thing they don't like. Yeah, it's yeah. difficult to so sustain. It's fascinating. So you think about what, what determines an elite athlete, and maybe your clock, your internal clock, <laughs> yeah. filtered you away from being an endurance athlete. <laughs> That's right. Or vice versa. Fascinating. Uh, and then final question. Thanks, Dale, for your time. Chris Harrison. Looking forward to this follow-up. How long does it take to recover from a disrupted night's sleep? Whether it's partying neighbors, work strife on the mind, or maybe a drink or two too many. Sometimes the standard seven hours becomes four or five. What's the likely effect of training out on training output in the following days? Similarly, the evening before race day, especially compounded with sleeping away from home in a terrible hotel bed, is often disrupted. How much might this affect performance and can we mitigate it in any way? Well, there's loads of questions in there. Mm. <laughs> so going back to the first one, how much sleep do you need to recover from a, from a single night? Um, I mean, if, it's, if you've had good baseline sleep, one odd night of four to five hours, you generally back within one night. We, we generally we, we, we rebound really quickly. Mm. Thank goodness. Thank you for, from an evolutionary perspective, we're designed to do that. Mm. Um, and when we don't have to pay back all the sleep debt, just a good portion of it. So that's probably the response to the first one. Um, if, however, you're coming in on a shaky basis, so you're constantly a little bit sleep deprived, and then you have another night of sleep deprivation, then clearly that number is going to go up a little bit mm. um, in terms of recovery days. Right, and the same then applies. So, so for race day, you you almost have to assume that I need to focus on from day eight to day t minus two, as opposed to t minus one. So, when it comes to race day, um, I always think about it like this: banking sleep. I think we had this conversation before, didn't we? We bank yeah. sleep. The, we bank sleep in the week before. Right. Yeah, yeah because you know you're going to have um, one day. So sure. One day. Uh, one night of slightly poor sleep isn't going to wreck your performance the next day. You might not feel great, but it's insane what you're able to put out on not feeling great. Mm. Um, mm. From a physical perspective, you would be, yes, maybe your cognition won't be great, but very often that doesn't play the biggest role ever in your in your performance. Mm. You just need to be able to block things out, go into the cave and get through it. <laughs> yeah, and, and what, would, what would undermine your performance in a big way is if you obsess about the fact that you didn't sleep the night before yeah. and then you carry what is really mental, it's not weakness, but it's negativity yeah. into the event. Yeah, so totally. Rather yes. accept poor sleep on day T minus one if yes. you've had good sleep before. Exactly. And it's the adrenaline on the day and the excitement that's going to push you through anyway. So mm. you're going to probably mm. be fine as long as you've bought yourself in in the week before on a nice big solid sleep platform you should be fine mm. obviously we're talking about um endurance type events here if you do we're speaking sort of the sports that require more <laughs> more skill more finesse <laughs> and eye coordination sports a little bit of sleep deprivation is going to have a slightly larger impact clearly yes yeah yes. um did you see just out of, this is my own question now did you did you see at the Olympic Games there was talk that Pidcock in the mountain biking had spent weeks in Tokyo and Van der Poel flew in two or three days before? 
I'd read a very brief story about that, but I don't remember. So, that, but I think Van der Poel arrived quite late. But I'm not sure about yeah, Pitcock. Yeah. No, yeah. I think Pitcock was there for a couple of weeks. And yeah. Van der Poel. Now you, you, you're a mountain biker, Dale. You saw the, how that ended. I'm not in any way, please, attributing <laughs> that to the fact that he had less sleep, maybe because of jet lag. <laughs> And there was heat adaptation, and yeah. there would have been um, course familiarization. But I, I couldn't understand how an elite athlete would take the risk of arriving that close to the mm. to the target. So I can't remember if we discussed this in episode one or not, but I'm taking the chance now is, how long should people allow for jet lag adaptation before they want to peak in a sports event? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're, when you're getting... When you're thinking about this, the one race scenario, like in Olympic Games, mm. we're on the safe side. Like th- that's the most obvious thing. You get yeah, one chance, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one crash, and you're out. So, I mean, the general rule of thumb is that for every time zone crossed over three, you need a day to recover. So, you're going to cross eight time zones. You're looking at eight days to um, to recover. With an athlete, you're going to need to build up on that a little bit more because in that cover, in that recovery period, your training um, might be affected, mm. um, and your metabolism has to adjust. So you want to give yourself every bit of time that you can. So, mm. I mean, arriving anything less than than a sort of eight to depending on your time zone, seven to eight days ahead of time is it's pretty much suboptimal. Mm. And when you're a, an athlete at that level, I would say it's probably inexcusable. It's actually the same for heat, altitude, and jet lag. The answer to the question is as soon as you can. As soon as you can. I remember speaking to to someone who was going to do a cycling thing in Joburg and thinking that they could sneak in and out before the altitude hit them. So it doesn't work that way. Neither does heat and neither does travel fatigue. You have to just adapt in the time it takes. No, absolutely. That's my question, Mike. Yeah, I've just got one question that just leads on to something you touched on there very briefly. Is there a difference in the way people sleep depending on the altitude that they sleep at? We talk a lot about these hyperbaric chambers that some of these top athletes sleep in uh, to try and up their red blood cell count. Um, Do we know if there's any differences depending on the altitude you live at? It's a very specific question, I know. It's a very specific question to which uh, I have no, absolutely no cooking clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, when you when you you're asking about when you're an altitude native. Yes, yes. In other words, do people? I mean, obviously, if you're climbing Kilimanjaro, for instance, you will, as you get up to altitude, you will probably sleep better or worse I don't know what would you way potentially worse, worse way, yeah. worse. way yeah. worse in fact it's one of the earliest signs someone's failing mm. I remember when we did Kelly that the guy who we knew was going to struggle the most is the guy who on day three was waking up a lot in the night because you wake up unable to breathe right yeah you actually mm. wake up and <gasps> that's just because breath. you can't breathe yeah because your your brain hasn't yeah. been sensitive enough to the drop in the PO2 the mm-hmm. pressure of oxygen and then you get this build up and build up, and suddenly you have to gasp. It's not that different from sleep apnea, right? No, it's it's it, in fact it's a very similar response. Yeah. And so it's interesting because it makes me think that it's the it's the environment directly impacting the sleep, mm. as opposed to like is it difficult to sleep in a in a certain environment? We we can adapt to sleep anywhere. We can adapt to sleep in the heat. We can adapt to sleep in the cold. But it's that shifting phase mm. that's key. So now what I'm talking about now is day three and four on the way up to Kiliard, three and a half, and then four thousand meters. So we're yeah. talking higher than most people inhabit <laughs> generally. Yeah. Johannesburg, those of you listening in Denver, that's not as much of an issue. My experience is at altitude, I really don't sleep well. And I think it is partly the thinner air, but also it's drier air. 
in the places yeah. I've been. Mm. And that makes a bigger difference to me, mm. I think, than the altitude does. Yeah, fully. So, yes, it's, a, it's mm. an additional stress that takes a while to adapt to, in yeah. my experience. What's the most common sleep condition that comes through your facility? Insomnia, hands down. And that's, a say, wide, that's a wide topic. I mean, yeah, but I reckon there's probably, really a, there's probably a very there's, very, there's probably a very concise definition of it, or pre- precise definition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what is that? Yeah. So I mean, it's true. Insomnia is a super broad catch-all term, but I'm talking about like proper insomnia. So generally, there's three types of insomnia: sleep onset, which everyone thinks insomnia is sleep onset insomnia. It's as in, actually, I cannot fall asleep. I cannot fall asleep, and that's defined as I cannot fall asleep within 30 minutes on at least three nights of a week. That's mm. sleep onset insomnia. We actually see that less commonly. The most common thing that we see is um, sleep maintenance type insomnia. That's where I sleep fine, I fall asleep easily, and then I wake somewhere in that bewitching hour, 1 to 3 a.m., and I can't reinitiate sleep. So that's like Alan's question that we answered a little while ago. The, yeah. The, yes. Exactly. Yeah. And when that happens on three or more nights a week, that's sleep maintenance type insomnia. And then there's early onset, uh, early onset, um, early awakenings type insomnia. So that's when you sleep absolutely fine, but you're awake one to two hours before you'd like to be, and you can't reinitiate sleep. Um, and that's, again, slightly less common. So the middle one is the most common, and that middle one is mm. most commonly driven by stress and anxiety. Mm. That's like, yeah, mm. hands down. <laughs> I guess they all got some element of stress and anxiety linked to them, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. We actually had that chat last time is that there isn't, uh, I mean, mental health, which encompasses stress, mm. anxiety, depression, mm. of course, goes hand in hand with sleep issues. And the two fuel each other like mm. you can't believe. Mm. I mean, there's not a physiological reason why you wouldn't sleep, is there? From, a, from I mean, a stress perspective? No, from a, non, a non-mind perspective. In other words, your, your body just won't sleep because it is oh, X. Ab- no, absolutely there are. Um, so... And this is one of the common presentations. People think that they've got insomnia, but they don't. And it could be other things. So we could have things like restless leg syndrome. So that's a neurological issue where your legs are very uncomfortable as you're trying to fall asleep. And so that impacts sleep monstrously. Periodic limb movement is something that's similar. Um, Probably um, obstructive sleep apnea is something that Mm. um, we've spoken about, I think, before. Mm. So that interrupts sleep a lot. And then circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders are very common. So we often, I'll hear somebody say like, oh, my sleep's terrible, I just, I just can't sleep. And you work out, they've got an extremely late body clock. So their natural bedtime is two, three, four in the morning. And they're trying to go to bed at 11 because they think they need to sleep. Um, and that will present as sleep onset type insomnia, but it's not. It's There's a circadian issue here and we have to realign this clock or sleep in line with the clock either way <laughs> yeah. to has resolve it, the has issue. Has ever been... <laughs> I remember there was a guy called Phineas Gage. Do, do you ever know this, do the story? He's a, what, he was a, what a great name. <laughs> and he, got a, he was a railway worker or something. He got a bolt in the brain and oh, it changed his personality became, because he survived it, which was a miracle. But it, it made him a different human being because it had impacted his front... I think it was his frontal lobe or prefrontal cortex. That's as, as an aside to teeing up my question. Has there ever been a documented case of, of, of brain damage or stroke or something that's completely knocked out or ablated someone's ability to sleep? Yeah. So the, the models that 
<laughs> animal models <laughs> right. saying this carefully <laughs> done with ablation to various areas alternatively um with um knockout genes of course mm. um specifically to the um hypothalamus and specifically to the sc and the suprachiasmatic mm. nuclei so that's sort of the the primary area that seems to be and again that comes back to the clock and the circadian rhythmicity yeah once that goes then so, sleep is difficult so theoretically it's possible for someone to have a brain that just cannot sleep yeah so but that you can imagine <laughs> from an evolutionary perspective that's not a gene that's going to last very long no nah. uh, yeah. because yeah, that person fine. is not making it very far yeah 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 so remember that the for sleep to initiate it there's a bunch of neurotransmitters that need to be at certain levels or um sort of some need to be high some need to be low to, to put it very crudely <laughs> and so it's much more a problem that within the brain if there's a problem mm. with those neurotransmitters and their levels then you're more likely to be in a state where sleep is just impossible for it, mm. for it to happen because you don't get that switch which flicks you into sleep. And, and, and what about mechanistically, and I promise this is the last question, <laughs> what about the exact opposite of insomnia, which is basically you just cannot stay awake? It's called so teenager. Not, <laughs> at the right times. At the right times. Like narcolepsy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening there? So that's exactly um, the, the opposite in that, again, that's usually put down to to these neurotransmitters so the so it just like there's a switch that flicks you from sleep from wake to sleep we go the other way around mm. and so when those neurotransmitters are low then you're more likely to be constantly literally constantly falling asleep so your alerting is just it's not happening but there's also a difference between hypersomnia so which yeah, is the opposite yeah. of insomnia so it's excessively long right. sleep and, and that's a different state altogether and narcolepsy is like insomnia is defined with as three nights a week. There's probably a time frame and a frequency for falling asleep before you are narcoleptic. Yeah. Um, yes and no. I mean, there's sort of there's diagnostic tests that need to be done to be able to show whether or not a person um, mm. has narcolepsy. And so sometimes they will have these little things. They're almost like micro sleeps or they're called sleep attacks where in the middle of the day the person is up looking fine and then they literally they can literally blank out or they can actually fall asleep and it's usually not it's not i'm falling asleep and i'm having a 10 minute sleep i'm having a micro sleep mm-hmm. um and then they come out and that's often brought on by like high emotion laughing or crying um so huh. that's the cataplexy component of, of narcolepsy <laughs> Amazing. um yeah but actually their nighttime sleep is also impacted so that they uh, the structure of their REM is, is different. So there's a whole lot that's going on there, which is way sure. too for much. Every, for every 100 insomniacs, I mean, how many narco or, or hypersomniacs oh, no. are there? It must be way disproportionate on the other side. Way, way, way. I mean, I think it's like maybe not even half a percent. Huh. Yeah, if that. So it's it's pretty it's pretty uncommon. Mm. So if mm. we say that one in three people have um, insomnia type issues from time to time, so it's pretty common. Um, not so with narcolepsy. Mm. Well, I'd say that I'd say we're out of questions, but we're not. Well, we because I could I could keep going. <laughs> we could keep going, but we're not going to. <laughs> so I'm going to before I hand it over to Mike. I'm going to say thanks to all the patrons. Remember, if you enjoy the show and you want to pledge some support and have the chance to ask these kinds of questions, join our fireside chats, get exclusive content. Go to patreon.com forward slash science of sport, and then I'll just say thanks to Dale. This honestly, you could sit with a notebook. Yeah. Two notebooks because you'll fill them because every line is something to remember. Yep. So thanks, Dale, for your time from my side. Mike. 
uh, nothing more to add other than that. Uh, thank you very much for your, for your time. And uh, are you on Twitter or any of these social media platforms? Can people contact you on Twitter, for instance? <laughs> so we are with Sleep Science. Um, what's so what's we the have handle? Instagram handles. It's sleep. It's just Sleep Science. Um, is it, how does I, it, I don't know mine either. I don't know. I'm <laughs> this. But if you look, you at look our, it up, I can say you can look at our website, uh, sleepscience.co.za. It's got the links to our um, Instagram, which is super active. We've got a very active Instagram account. Yeah. Cool. But when we, when we release questions. this podcast and promote it on socials, I'll yeah. make sure I put the handle in there. Put the handles in. On Twitter and Insta and Facebook if they're up. Dr. Dale Ray, Director of Sleep Science and a Senior Researcher at the University of Cape Town. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.